0: This podcast was created for our philosophy class. It deals with moral duty and conflicts in duty. We interviewed a variety of people to get their responses and experiences on this subject and also provided commentary relating back to Asian philosophy.
1: I had the good fortune of interviewing Mayor Jim Gray to muse about his views concerning duty and how it arises in the many facets of his personal identity.
0: My name is Max Shea. I had the fortune of interviewing Staff Sergeant Jared Choate. We talked about his combat deployments, how he dealt with his duty to the government, duty to the military, and duty to himself, and how he reconciled differences within those duties. And his interview actually went along very well with a lot of Taoist, Hindu, and Buddhist principles. I was very impressed with Jared's responses. I'm Grant Forbes, and for my interview, I
2: talked to a local pastor here in Kentucky and talked to him about how he addressed the differences that he may have between the Methodist church doctrine that he's required to uphold and his own personal beliefs about the nature of God. I then related this to the concept in Confucianism of a wu-wei leader who is able to do the best that they can within the traditions prescribed to them. Outstanding. With my
3: interviews, I interviewed two interesting individuals with two contracti- contrasting views of duty, one being General Counsel William Throw and then Judge Sarah Combs on the Kentucky Court of Appeals and what makes them so interesting is that their sense of duty comes from and can be similar to two different of our texts, one with them being the words of Krishna, and then directly within Sarah's being in line with Confucius. but. What makes them different is that they derive their sense of duty from two different sources, one being from God and then one being from a tradition instilled within the sense of the parents. But moreover, what makes them contrasting to Asian philosophy is that they suggest that the self is still present but within the system, and that instead of looking and reserving the self within the self, it's different from what we know to be the way.
1: This is a Myers' interview with Lexington's Mayor Jim Gray. The first question I asked was what were his moral obligations versus his legal obligations.
4: We could say that the moral obligation and the legal obli- obligation may in some respects be distinctive, that there's a perhaps a higher moral obligation than a legal obligation. And that's true. The role that I have today as mayor was really informed, or my role today is informed by classes that I took as many as 40 years ago, for me, was centered around um, Immanuel Kant, the German philosopher, and the categorical imperative. What the categorical imperative basically said, if you've got a moral question, then you need to help yourself answer it by asking the question, if I universalize my action, would it be good for society? which helps, in a real fundamental way, answer questions like, should one commit a theft? Well, the answer to that would be no, because if you universalize that action, then everyone would be a thief, or that activity would be engaged liberally and not a good thing. So my view on moral obligations have been significantly influenced by my experiences in life and my experiences in, you know, in education as well.
1: Then I asked him what experiences in his life particularly influenced him.
4: My background is a family business, and so those experiences when I would have decisions to make in business, is this the right thing to do? That can be answered in many different ways depending on the circumstances. So the governing influence is the golden rule. Treat others the way you'd like to be treated. And that then helps influence the That helps answer questions that are often morally-centered questions.
1: The next question I asked was, how do you differentiate family, religious, community, political, and self-duty?
4: I would say that we work to frame these responsibilities and, in a sense, put them in vessels, put those responsibilities in vessels. But one vessel is always going to influence the next one, and it's almost like cascading water. So the best way to be fully engaged is to work on all of those dimensions of life.
1: The fourth question I asked was do you see yourself prioritizing your obligations in different settings where certain duties conflict with others?
4: The setting of moral priorities is first. And I think we move from strategic issues to you know at very high levels to tactical issues. I would say that Any organization or enterprise, even a city or a country or a state, needs its core values to be understood well. As a society, we've had a long history of our core values being represented and understood, and there's a sense today that that we've lost some of that groundedness.
1: The last question was, are your legal duties distinct or based off of moral duties to the self?
4: Oftentimes we can get the technical correct. We can do the checklist, and the technical is confirmed or ratified. But yet it may draw you to a conclusion that your moral judgment says is not best. So the way that I work through that is I'll examine the technical issues or the legal issues for that matter, and then at the same time on a parallel track, I'm examining the moral influences of these technical decisions to confirm that we're on the right path morally. And if we're not on the right path morally, then often we have to go back and re-examine the technical issues or the legal issues.
1: The mayor concluded with some musings on the nature of philosophy.
4: I was taking myself back to classes in philosophy that I took years ago, but influenced me in a really remarkable way. I sometimes say that a degree in philosophy is as good as any technical degree you can get because it teaches you how to think. And if you learn how to think critically, then you can usually get through the uh, turbulence of whatever circumstances you're in at the moment. Or at least that's been my experience.
1: In contrast with Asian philosophy in our text, particularly Confucianism, Mayor Gray's recount of Kant's categorical imperative is ducktailed with other interpersonal interactions, thus contrasting the way. The way is not culturally relative, it's natural and normative. The way is discovered and reserved in the self, but then transcends above the self and society. Therefore, Jim Gray's perception of duty with the self and moral obligations is reliant on interactions and their outcomes with other people. However, in Confucianism, the way is solely reserved to the self. In modern society, it is quite difficult to obtain this Confucius concept of the self. These moral obligations and duty to the self contrast, but that is what makes them so fascinating.
0: Thank you, Reyes, for your fantastic interview with Mayor Jim Gray. Up next is my interview, Max Shea, with Staff Sergeant Jared Choate of the U.S. Army. I hope you enjoy.
5: My name is Staff Sergeant Jared Choate. I'm with Alpha Company 135 Armor Battalion, uh, 2nd Armor Brigade Combat Team, 1st Armor Division, Fort Worth, Texas. Uh, 36 years old, two combat deployments, one for 15 months, one for 12 months. I've been in the army ten and a half years.
6: What when I say duty, what what does that make you think of? What how does that uh, how do you define duty?
5: I think of it as being part of something bigger, being uh, playing a role in something bigger than myself. You definitely keep that with the military. Yes, I do. Yes, because, uh in the military, you don't always see the full picture. You know, you only see your slice of the pie. You're tasked with to do something. So that's what you do not necessarily always knowing what the end state is going to be. Okay. So if I fail if I if I fail in my task then the bigger picture has a, a possibility of crumbling in on itself.
6: That's a good point. So then you just have to trust that it's gonna work out in the end as long as you do your part.
5: As long as I do my part. I can only control what's in my box and I do that to the best of my ability. And as long as I do that then I have played my role.
0: This is similar to Arjuna and Krishna in the Bhagavad Gita in that Arjuna and Jared are both part of the warrior class. And it is their duty as warriors to follow their orders and their duty and trust it will work out in the end with the bigger picture.
6: For you, is there a major difference between your family duty, your duty to your family, your duty to religion, your duty to the military, and your duty to yourself? Is there a big difference there or do they all kind of blend together?
5: They all kind of blend together. That, that, would, that, would be, that would be my best answer for that. Because what, I go very long lengths of time without ever being home, without ever seeing my family. In a lot of instances, the military and the guys that I am around 24-7 fill that spot. So they know things about me and probably know me better than my parents do in some instances because I'm more myself here than I am at home. Uh, Just because I'm 36 years old doesn't mean that things have changed since I was a child. When you're a child, you have a tendency to be on the best behavior around your parents. And then you're more yourself when you're around your friends and your peers. Same thing here. And not being home for lots of time and these guys being the only ones that I'm around, when I'm going through something, I got divorced a year and a half ago. Those are the guys that are there for me. It's not my family. So they play a more the same role. So there's nothing that I wouldn't do for them that I, I would do for my family.
6: That kind of sparked something. So whenever you got your divorce, that kind of makes me think, in that instance where you decide that, okay, this isn't working out, it's probably better that I get a divorce and that we start, you know, go our separate way, would that be an instance where your duty to yourself overrode your duty to, I guess, a past promise, where
5: you just knew that you needed to change things? Uh, that was actually more of a decision on her part. When I'm here, I'm in the field seven months of the year, and this was her first move here. So it was a big uh, climate change for her all all around. And myself being someone that's used to bouncing around and moving every two years, two years, and so on, it wasn't that big of an adjustment for me. But being out in the field and constantly being gone, she kind of came to the conclusion that if she was going to be by herself, then she might as well really be by herself. And I kind of understood where she was coming from with that and we just separated, we just parted ways. But uh, when that did happen, being that now it was just me at home, then I just started to revolve more around work. Can you talk
6: a little about your concept of a duty to yourself, like th- the honors that you owe to yourself and the things that you know that you have to do?
5: For me, once again, that still kind of intertwines, it still kind of intertwines with work. I have a very strong obligation to myself to try every opportunity that's open to me through my job, be it Ranger School, be it through Special Forces Selection, uh, be it Air Assault School, all of these schools and educational and additional skills that are offered to me, I feel obligated to try them and do them because my biggest fear is to let them pass me up and never having tried. So my duty to myself is to take advantage of every opportunity to better myself and in turn better my soldiers as much as I can. So which of the, have you gone to those schools? Uh, No, no, not yet. February for Pre-Ranger and hopefully if all goes well, May for Ranger. Oh, awesome. Good
6: luck, man. That'd be awesome.
5: Thank you. Thank you.
6: From situation to situation, your duties may change a bit, so how do you prioritize which one takes precedent? When you have to make a decision in the field, be it like an in-the-moment decision, you're returning fire or reacting to combat or uh, pulling the trigger, that's or that's got to have some kind of moral implications to it, and that's something that I feel that every soldier has to find it within himself. So how do you balance that, uh, that feeling?
5: All right, that's kind of... Uh... It's kind of a difficult question to answer, really, it is, because everybody handles that differently. For me, in some of the situations that I've been in, it was it, there was really no choice in the matter. I had to react. It's all situational. The hardest thing to deal with is the loss of a soldier, not the hurting of someone who was trying to hurt you or them. So how do I deal with it? I recognize that it happened and take lessons learned from it and try to prepare the people that are underneath me for having to go through the same thing, just like I was prepared for it. I wasn't thrown in there as just a civilian off the street with a rifle and saying, go. There is a mental preparation for this, and the Army has 500 years of preparing soldiers for this type of thing, and it is successful. So as far as the, the moral problem that you have, as much as I hate to say it, it's almost as the... You're trained more to to react than to think. And the think comes later on, and it's easier to deal with.
6: It's the nature of the beast that's
5: what It it is the nature of the beast. Uh, No one is blind when they volunteer for the infantry.
6: So everybody kind of knows what what they're getting into.
5: They might not know how they're going to react when they're put into a situation because no one really does until they're put into it, but they know what the possibilities are.
0: His description about... Combat and how he deals with combat situations is very similar to Buddhism in that he's 100% engaged in the moment. He's no longer thinking, he's just doing. It also is similar to Confucianism in that even after the combat is over, he uses his experiences from that to help the people underneath him, help the soldiers underneath him grow and act just as well in those situations as he has.
6: And I, I don't mean to. Uh dig any deeper than you would like me to if, if, if there's anything you say stop you let me know yeah. Yeah.
0: you get a big sense in the military that it's very similar to confucianism and that Your duty to yourself comes second to your duty to the established authority around you. We couldn't go further with a lot of the conversation because he's under so many confidentiality agreements and there's restrictions on what he can tell me and stories that he can't necessarily talk about. It's also a very touchy subject when talking to veterans. You don't want to flat out say, have you ever killed somebody before? You need to have a certain amount of reverence and respect for what they've done and what they've gone through.
3: Thanks Mac and Staff Sergeant Jared Choate for that wonderful account and unique experience detailing duty and what it means to be in the military. Up next we have General Counsel William E. Throw discussing his perspective in the origins of duty and how it arises from one origin source and transcends into all aspects of his daily life. But first, if Mr. Throw can detail about his own experiences and background.
7: My name is William Throw I currently serve as the University of Kentucky's General Counsel. I'm also a part-time adjunct uh, professor of law. Um, prior to coming to UK, I was the University Counsel for Christopher Newport University, a small public liberal arts school in Newport News, Virginia. Prior to doing that, I was Solicitor General of the Commonwealth of Virginia. As Solicitor General, I was Virginia's Chief Appellate Advocate and defended uh, the Virginia government and the U.S. Supreme Court, as well as handling all constitutional issues in uh, appeals involving um, statutes and regulations involving the uh, Virginia government. My definition of duty would be an obligation that one owes to God or to other individuals or to other uh, organizations. I think duty ultimately arises with God as a human being, we have certain obligations to God, certain things that we have to be grateful to God for, notably salvation, but with salvation includes certain obligations. God in his infinite wisdom has created various aspects of human life, what Abraham Kuyper called spheres of sovereignty. And within each of those spheres of sovereignty, we may have additional duties. Uh, For example, in the sphere of a family, uh, one might have a duty as a husband, a duty as a father, and then also a duty to one's own parents a duty as as a son or daughter. In the sphere of the government, one has a duty as a citizen to obey the legitimate laws and regulations of the state, pay one's taxes, and in certain circumstances to obey the legitimate mandates of the government in terms of going to war or doing some sort of... uh, personal sacrifice. In the sphere of work, one obviously has a duty to one's employer, certain obligations to to one's co-workers, and of course, as a lawyer, I have duties and obligations to my clients, which I freely take on. In my theology, all of these various spheres, various aspects of human life, are all part of God's creation, and my obligation to God is in all of those aspects of life. And it takes the the, the various forms in the respective spheres.
3: Though the Christian perception of God being giving, merciful, and loving, having a designated description, we can contrast Mr. Thoreau's sense of duty and how it's applied in the different spheres throughout as a constant with Krishna, Divorcing ourselves from something of descriptive with a specific purpose or mechanic, we see within Mr. Throw's definition of duty how there's aspects and transcends into everything that we do. As he noted in the spheres and realms of our aspects of duty, from being an attorney, being a man within the family, and our duties and roles, that the one thing constant that we can that we do not find in conflict, is that we can always find something within our basic principle, our transcending principle, such as we found in the doctrines in the text within Krishna. We find ourselves to have this constant that trends above all else, and that in the realities that we find ourselves conflicting with, we have to choose within the priority, and what we choose is the constant transcending principle. For Mr. Throw, it's God.
7: There are times when one's duty to a particular individual or a particular institution conflicts with what seems to be one's other duties. In those instances, you have to prioritize. I think you end up doing so on almost a case-by-case or circumstance-by-circumstances basis. I have a duty to my employer to work I have a duty to my son as his father to be supportive of his various endeavors. If I have a major trial and he has a relatively minor athletic contest or something, the the major trial would probably take precedence. On the other hand, if it's a routine day at work and he is playing for the state championship or is performing in the... um, all-State Chorus, then I think my obligations as a father might take precedence over my obligations as, as, a, as an employee. Or as a lawyer. Similarly, my obligations to my wife on a day-to-day basis might in some circumstances be subordinate to my obligations to my employer or my obligations to my country if you know I was suddenly drafted and put to, to, to war. On the other hand, if my wife was in absolute peril, facing some sort of medical emergency or whatever, I think those would certainly trump lesser obligations to employers or routine things. So I, I think in some respects it depends upon the gravity of the moment to conflicting duties sometimes and you have to look at those i think it's always difficult to 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 find balance particularly if your responsibilities and your your duties are are great i've spent much of my career in jobs that were literally 24 7 you know you might get calls from the president on Friday on Friday night you might get calls from the president on Sunday morning and you deal with those that makes it difficult sometimes to balance your obligations with family and your obligations to other people and but you you have to find that balance in terms of a absolute conflict it's hard for, I, I think I have to say no, and that because is because I've never conceived of my duty as requiring me to do something that was inherently wrong and that would violate my other duties or responsibilities. I guess to put it in a particular thing, if if my duty required me to, to break the law, then I would say that that duty would be somewhat invalid because it would be irreconcilable with my duties as a citizen, my responsibilities as a, as a lawyer and as an officer of the court, and I think ultimately my responsibilities to God. In a very real sense, if, if you think about it, duty is tangential to everything. I mean, when I think about my personal identity, what does it mean to be me? I think first and foremost about my relationship to God and my gratitude for my salvation and the expectation for doing works that flows from that faith. And I also think about my responsibilities. You know, God has blessed me with children that gives me responsibilities for that. Being a father is a key part of my identity. Being a husband is a key part of my identity. Being the son to my mother. My father has passed away. Being the son to my mother is part of my identity. And a large part of my identity is, quite frankly, tied up in my work as both um, a lawyer and a scholar. And I think all of those flow from duties in various obligations. So in a real sense, if I remove any sense of duty, you know, then most of those identities, most of those aspects of my identity would collapse, if that makes any sense. So in a very real sense, I think duty is sort of the definition of kind of who I am as a person and how I interrelate with others.
2: Up next, we have my Grant Forbes' interview with Dr. George Strunk of Christ Church United Methodist in Louisville, Kentucky. So the first thing I asked Dr. Strunk was how he defines duty and where he thinks duty comes from.
8: Um, I guess when I think of the word duty, the closest word to it is obligation in, in my mind it was how I would define it. You know, for me, the, the greatest sense of duty I have is to God um, because of the way I see the world. I believe that life is this gift to all of us, and that everything we do is in grateful response to a God who's given us those gifts. When I think of the word duty and obligation, one of the things that informs me a lot is hymnody. Uh, a hymn that was written by Isaac Watt uh, is When I Survey the Wonders Cross, um, on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and pour contempt on all my pride. The last stanza says, uh, uh, were the whole realm of nature mine, that were an offering far too small, love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. And so I get that, that there's, I can do no other but give all that I have to a God who's given me so much, and who's given his life for me, uh, his son for me on the cross. For me, those are defining events about the way I see myself in the world, and I get that sense of obligation. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I also am informed by tradition of Christian teaching throughout the centuries. It says we're awfully prone to turn that into a works righteousness. We think that God is a gracious God who freely gives to us, and we respond out of love but so many people see God as a vengeful God, an angry God that needs to be satisfied. And we've got to do everything right in order to satisfy that God. And so they turn living a Christian life or a religious life into an obligation rather than a joy, into a duty rather than a free response out of gratitude. And anytime that happens, we, we end up in works righteousness where we're trying to do all the right things, but for all the wrong reasons. It's no longer out of a grateful response to a loving God; it's out of a sense I've got to satisfy an angry God. That misses the point. So for me, there's this tension between this sense of obligation I feel versus the nature of what how I live is supposed to be a grateful response to God, not a sense of obligation or duty that I have to do something. But because this is something I'm compelled to do because of God's love.
2: The point that Dr. Strunk makes about works righteousness versus a ethic that flows out of a sense of love for or a love from God uh, is similar, I think, to Confucius's conception of Wu Wei as a right behavior or an ethic that flows naturally from a person rather than being based on some sort of effort. And this tension that he states he feels between his sense of obligation, which is how he defines duty, and the uh, way that he feels he is supposed to live is very similar to the paradoxical nature of the way in which Confucius defines Wu Wei. The next thing I asked Dr. Strunk was whether or not he felt that his duties or his obligations to God versus his country or his family came from different sources or if they all stemmed from the same source or if there was any sort of tension between them.
8: I think there's separate entities that I don't mix so well. I feel a tension between those things at times. I mean, God and country, I I came up during the Vietnam War, and I faced this tension at that point about a God that probably doesn't want us killing each other versus the notion that there's evil in the world that needs to be destroyed. And so I feel a conflict at that point in terms of what my country's asking of me versus what God asks of me, and... I resolved I would have gone, but my draft number didn't come up. But I respect young people and any person that feels that tension between uh, I don't think I can participate in these violent activities versus the notion that there is an evil in the world that's best to be eliminated. So, yeah, I sense conflict in those areas and the way that different obligations may pull me in different directions.
2: The next question I asked Dr. Strunk was whether he ever felt any sort of tension between any strongly held political beliefs that he may have and his duty to not preach those from the pulpit even if he thinks that we in some sense have a moral obligation to follow whatever his particular beliefs are.
8: Basically I don't think I mix politics and religion very much Mm -hmm. in in my sermons. Um, I think it as a matter of, of legal things, I've respected the Constitution for a long time that you kinda of, we were given tax exempt status. We're not supposed to be political here in the sense of party affiliation involving government affairs. But I do think religion by its nature is political. I mean, we're trying to deal with people's lives and what's right and wrong in people's lives, but I don't really mix that in with politics. So <clears throat> We did take on a political issue in the last year, which was about um, what do we do about the issue of marriage? Uh, because we knew it was coming up in a couple of ways. One, the Supreme Court was gonna rule on that and and probably make it to, available to everybody. Uh, and yet we had a tradition in our church that was throughout the history of Christianity, most traditions have said that God's idea of union between a man was between a man and a woman between male and female so how, what do you do with that so we tried to address that and when the Supreme Court uh, came out and we talked about it for four weeks in a series called loving through our differences we weren't mixing politics and religion at that point we were trying to say what kind of community are we as a church and the notion was we're a community that we're not all going to think alike but we can love alike and so, to that extent, we mix politics and religion, but it wasn't about favoring one side or the other. It was recognizing, you know, one of God's wills for us is to try to remain united in love, even if we don't always think alike. So we did that when the Supreme Court decision came out. Uh, I issued a statement from the from the pulpit in which uh, I basically tried to carve out a center line on this, uh, uh, where I said. I rejoice with my sisters and brothers who are of same-sex orientation who now have some legal rights they didn't have before and I grieve with my sisters and my brothers who feel like this has taken us in a direction that is wrong uh, and then I clearly define that according to our rules as a church uh, the Supreme Court could not decide what we did as a church body we would continue to maintain the church's teaching that we, we would not perform same-sex marriages here, we're not allowed to. I cannot break my sacred vow to the church and to God in order to help somebody else fulfill what they see as a sacred vow. So we won't do that, we'll we'll follow the laws and the teaching of our church, but we'll always welcome persons. We'll be a church of open minds and open hearts and open doors, we have received persons of same-sex orientation into our church, we'll continue to do so, uh, but we won't be performing marriages. So we try, I think, as best we can to keep politics and religion separate.
2: Dr. Strong's answer to this question reminded me of Confucius's Mm -hmm. philosophy in which he tries to do what is best specifically within the confines of the established traditions that are laid out for him. And he doesn't necessarily think that we should subvert those traditions but simply try to work within them in order to achieve what's best. With this in mind, I wanted to see if Dr. Strunk had any traditions of the Church that he felt that he agreed with, as I put it, less than others. And additionally, how does he reconcile that, those disagreements with his duty to uphold the doctrine of the Church? Uh,
8: um. Are there parts? There are parts that I struggle with, sure. And and this issue of uh, homosexuality is one that I've wrestled with personally. I'm not sure I'm totally aligned uh, with where our church is on that. Um, I guess when I think about, but in the example that we just talked about about loving through our differences, that tends to be the way that I resolve those differences, and that is when. Faced with competing obligations, with competing duties, what does love require in the situation? Uh, and so there are people that feel strongly about this issue of, of that same sex orientation is uh, perfectly acceptable. And there are people that don't. And where I keep coming down is uh, that whole theory about what's right and wrong has changed in my lifetime. Difficult for me. The one thing that hasn't changed for me is the obligation to love. And that, how do I love a person who's different from I am, whether they're same sex orientation, different political views, Democrat, Republican, rich and poor, black and white? How do I love in that situation? That seems to be the overarching duty, if you will, that I, I commit to. Not one side or the other, but how will we love each other through because we're not all going to agree about everything. For me, the church is the only place where we get to be with people that are not just like us these days. Maybe in a public school system, it still exists, but you know in uh, in this community more and more people choose private schools. Persons just like themselves. Uh, So when we keep putting ourselves into enclaves, and the church may be the only place where we get to be with people that aren't just like us. And I think that's the how we make a great church is we learn to love each other, even if we don't think alike.
3: Thanks, Grant, for that interview with Dr. George Strunk. We're moving on now to our final interview with Judge Sarah Combs with the Kentucky Court of Appeals. But first, if Sarah can go through her experience and how she became who she is, and how duty relates to her experience
9: law school at night while I was teaching by day. I have a master's degree in French literature, which is a reason why I had to go to law school at night because it, although it was a beloved subject, it was not the most practical major in the world. And so I found my way to law or law found its way to me, I'm not sure which, and I've been devoting, I guess, my life to that study and enterprise for the last 31 years. Duty is the devotion of oneself, exclusive of one's personal interests to one's responsibility, one's love, one's mentees, running from one's pets to one's beloved human objects as well. It, it extends to country, it extends to job, it extends to family, it encompasses all of those interests that lie beyond oneself but yet for, for which one feels a sense of responsibility and obligation. For me, I was, um, I was brought up with the notion, as, as early as I could remember, that where much was given, much was expected. My mother impressed upon me the fact that I had loving parents, that I had good health, that I had the opportunity for an education, and that, she said, was a rare commodity. That combination was a rare commodity in this world, and therefore I had much to pay back to society for having had those wonderful opportunities. So I would really say that it arose with with my mother and father, and even more primarily with my mother. My father was not a disciplinarian. My mother was, was interested in my turning out to be a responsible citizen, more so than my father who would have loved me no matter what. But mother wanted me to be accountable for the gifts that had been given to me in this world. And in addition to that, I really wanted to please those parents who were so good to me. I think that it was as much a desire to please them that I assumed responsibility for what I perceived to be my duties. I think that once you have been made aware of those wishes of your parents and, and the background that, that, um, about which I've just spoken, the world becomes one vast opportunity to apply those principles. And I believe that every enterprise is a new venture in that regard. Every enterprise, whether it be my teaching career, whether it was my private law practice, whether it was representation of a corporation for which I was general counsel for seven years, now my time with the Court of Justice. Each one of those venues has been a new opportunity where duty is tested and is either, I think, lived up to or or disappointed. And hopefully, I, I hope that I've been able to live up to those duties and that I haven't disappointed too much. But every day is a new test. Every case is a new test. Will I be diligent enough? Will I work hard enough? Will I be wise enough? Will I be able to do whatever is expected of me to give the people who've trusted me with this office the full measure of my service that that they deserve and need? And I don't think that we can ever become lax about our sense of duty. I think the sense that we... we are committed to it as a general principle is very, very important, but also the sense that we never become complacent about our compliance with it, that we continue to pursue it like a new venture every day. It is a quest. It's a quest in the sense of the Man of La Mancha, the impossible dream type quest, although it is possible. Inevitably, there will be conflicts. Um, The one that springs most readily to mind for me is the year 1981. In the spring of 1981, I was very, very busy as an associate with a law firm, with the firm of White, Terran, and Combs. Many demands were made on time, and my mother became gravely ill. My mother died that spring. And how to reconcile getting the demands of that job taken care of with her care. And I made a conscious choice that I could always take care of the job, but I only had one chance to take care of my mother in her last hours. And I would bring the work home, and I wrote a brief that was a very critical part of a case in her room, sitting on the floor of the room where she died. But I was there, and I was taking care of her. And even though it wasn't a conventional way to do work, I was able to reconcile the two. But if choice had to be made, the choice was made to take care of my mother. And I think for women in particular, that's a reality. You have very often a test between your duties toward your family and your loved ones versus a career. I've always thought that it's more important to put the duties of the heart ahead of the duties of ambition. Yes. If a choice has to be made, I don't think you'll ever regret serving the loves of your life, the people who've counted on you, the critters who've counted on you, rather than serving the dictates of your own personal ambition, especially career-wise. That's a choice I've made consistently all my life, and I've never regretted.
3: Here, Sarah's suggestion of duty seems to go in line with Confucius's idea and duty to the parents that Sarah notes her mother and her influence being the disciplinary and then how it contributes to her sense of duty, how her parents and what they instilled in her obligations to her parents and what was instilled through her mother gave her the sense of being a better person, to go into society, to be accountable, and that this duty to herself through her parents, along with the Confucian ideas, seemed to be very similar in this format.
9: I would say that it probably is my identity. For so many years, I've been alone. Everybody I loved had died many years ago, and my late husband died 24 years ago tonight. This is the anniversary of his death. And the way that I survived and filled the void in my life was work. And it wasn't just work, busy work to stay busy to keep my hands busy. Fortunately, I had the training and I had the opportunity and a career to serve the public. And so public service absolutely became the core of my identity. Everything else became secondary to it. There was no one who could be disappointed in me at that point. Nobody whose life depended on my care at that point. And that's how it comes full circle. In the beginning, there were those who needed me to take care of them. I did that, and I took care of the profession as well. The profession waited for me to come back to it. And then when they were gone, the profession filled the void in my life that they left. So duty has really been the focal point of my life. I don't know how to live without it, quite frankly, and I know it's a four-letter word, but that's just a reality.
3: Sarah's sense of duty and how it relates to her personal identity, it becomes the self, it becomes herself. But instead of the self being a natural form, It would suggest more that the self becomes transcendent within the workplace flow, in the workplace environment, within the system around. Herself becomes uh, dissolved into the systems around and to a sense of excellence. So the self is still a personable sense that would suggest to be different from the natural flow, such as the way, as suggested in Confucius.
9: I guess I could say that my concept is maybe more personal than what would be expected of someone in in a profession or a career. For example, I took my final exams in law school from my mother's sick room in the hospital. She had had a stroke my last night of classes. That was in November. It was the night before Thanksgiving. Final exams were going on for the next three weeks. I did not leave her room except to go home and take a shower and come back, go teach all day, come back, go to class at night, take the exams. But literally, being with her and, and watching over her in the hospital was more important to me than anything else, and therefore i've developed this sense that we are defined by whom and by what we love, perhaps more by whom we love than anything else so duty really dovetails with with me with a sense of what's the great love interest in our life. Our credentials are objective, our academic credentials are objective they're there they're written in stone they're going to be what they are. But if we sacrifice those for that subjective love in our life, I think we will live our lives in a sense of futility and at the end with regret. I believe that the love has to come ahead of everything else and that duty should should serve that love. I also like to think in terms of perhaps the, the quixotic notion that the ideal supersedes any sense of, of Ambition. Perhaps I'm I'm doing an overlay in my mind that very often our sense of duty is confused with our own sense of personal ambition and career. I believe that duty is meant to serve those we love and what we love again, more than to promote ourselves as, as a success in and of ourselves. One of my favorite lines from a movie is from that great movie Don Juan de Marcos by in which Johnny Depp and Marlon Brando joust with one another, the madman and the philosopher trying to find a sense of value in reality. There's a line where Johnny Depp, the madman, poses the question, what is sacred of what is the spirit made? It's a riddle. And there's one answer to all of these four questions. Let me go back again. These are the four questions with one answer. What is sacred of what is the spirit made? What is worth living for? What is worth dying for? it's love. Love is a four-letter word too, just like duty. And I think the two must have a very intimate interplay in our lives in order for either one to be meaningful. Love is no good without duty. Duty is like dry straw without.
0: Thank you for listening to this podcast about moral duties. We've got to interview quite the range of people on their moral duties and how they resolve conflictions within each one. We've used this information that they've provided us with and life stories and experiences they've provided us with to contrast and compare with Asian philosophies.